Welcome to the Reasoned Hope podcast. In this podcast, we explore the intellectual credibility of the Christian faith. We seek to show how the central hope found in Jesus Christ is not only rational, but that the Christian worldview makes sense of our experience, our deepest longings, and our intuitions about the world. Thanks for listening, and we hope today's episode is both encouraging and challenging to you, whether you are a believer or a skeptic. Thank you very much for joining me today on the Reason Hope podcast. This is a podcast where we investigate the intellectual credibility of the Christian faith, and this involves looking at objections to Christianity. Uh, it involves looking at uh, cultural issues, uh, and it involves clarifying aspects of Christian theology, what, what Christians actually believe. And normally on this show, uh, you'll hear me working through an issue or a topic related to those things. Today, we're going to do something uh, a little bit different. Uh, we're going to have a conversational interview. I've got a very special guest on the show with me today, and we're going to be discussing the moral argument for God's existence. And my guest today is Greg Kokel. Uh, Greg is the founder and president of Stand to Reason, an apologetics ministry based in California. Stand to Reason is focused on training Christians to be uh, ambassadors for Christ uh, and to help them grow in knowledge, wisdom, and character. Uh, Greg has written a number of books, uh, including Tactics, The Story of Reality, uh, and his newest book is uh, called Street Smarts. Greg, thank you so much for being with me today. Well, Parks, I am really looking forward to our conversation because I love this topic that you have scheduled for us. Oh, I I do too. It's a, I think it's a very important uh, topic and uh, a very important argument amongst the uh, the classical arguments for the existence of God. And I think it has a lot of important implications uh, for for how we think about morality and uh, and uh, human nature as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Greg, I think. Uh, it might be best to start off just talking about what the moral argument is. Um, okay. Some some people in the audience may not have a ton of familiarity mm-hmm. with it, and some may some may know a lot about it. But uh, mm-hmm. if we can just start off uh, talking about what the moral argument is, and I think the first couple questions I, I want to ask you is in in your view, how how would you describe the main goal or purpose of the moral argument? Yeah. Okay. So. Um, the moral argument is part of a um, <clears throat> a trio of arguments for God's existence. And let me start there because a lot of people may be listening. Um, they think of of, of uh, belief in God or Jesus or Christianity as, as just that, a, a simple mere belief. Uh, they might characterize it as a leap of faith or something. And they have no concept that there are actually solid reasons why um, we can um, be convinced that God actually exists. Okay, we're just talking about God, not Christianity. So this is very broad. And uh, and the, the, the picture here is a personal God, not just some kind of uh, force or whatever, you know. So does that individual exist? And is he responsible for the world? And there are a couple of arguments that are standard that are given. A lot of atheists will say, hey, there's no evidence for God. Well, you haven't been reading (laughs) and keeping your eyes open because the fact that the universe came into existence, the cause of the universe is a question. What brought it into existence? No, that's a type of argument for God. 
It's called the cosmological argument. It's based on the existence of the cosmos. That's all. But when you look at the cosmos, you see tremendous um, complexity, not just complexity, but order that even Richard Dawkins would say regarding the biological realm, um, it appears to be designed for a purpose. I mean, that's the first line of his book, The Blind Watchmaker. Uh, now, he doesn't, he thinks that's not the case. He could explain it naturalistically, but there's this appearance of design. It's incredible when you look at the details. So design implies a designer. That's the second argument. The third one, though, is our topic today. And that where th those two arguments look externally, so to speak, at features of the physical world, either the existence of the cosmos or the order, the particular order of the cosmos. Uh, this one looks at something non-physical, um, at morality. Okay, now there are there's a, a lot of, uh, I don't know if controversy is the right word uh, to use, but m maybe we'll use it for the moment. There's a, uh, w when I grew up, there wasn't much controversy about right and wrong, okay? But as I entered the 60s, and that's when I was in high school and started college, um, that's when this whole notion of what's right and wrong began to be challenged. And it began to be aggressively challenged in culture because you can't put it in a test tube, right and wrong. And so the conclusion was, well, it's just a matter of personal opinion. All right. You have your view. Somebody else has their view. And that's all you can say about it. So uh, relativism, this idea that right and wrong morality is relative to the individual who believes, um, also called subjectivism, uh, that that began to take hold. And now it's huge. OK, now it's everywhere. Um, that's captured by the slogan, you do you, okay? Truth is in you. Uh, follow your truth. There's lots of slogans now that people use to characterize that. That is the, the knee-jerk public response. But the fact is, deep down, people display or reveal a different conviction. For example, they complain about the problem of evil. Well, well I think that's a legitimate issue to raise, but it's only legitimate if there is a problem of evil. And if morals are like they say, just a matter of personal preferences, they're inside, then there's nothing outside that's actually evil. Okay, that's a contradiction. People talk about my rights this or my rights that, my rights the other. But to claim rights like that is to make a moral claim that is not subjective, not relativistic, but objective. People are saying the world contains moral obligations that I call my rights that you have to obey. Now, they don't say it in those words, but that's implicit in their claim. They talk about justice, big conversation, social justice now, and all different aspects of it. Well, that's justice relates to a moral good and how we ought to behave. Well, wait a minute. If morals are just relative the way you're claiming in most of your conversation, then there is no obligation for everybody else to obey what your view of justice happens to be. So you've got really the culture speaking with two voices. You have them screaming this relativistic voice. And and by, I did the same thing when I was in college. I mean, I was, March, I, was I, I was a relativist because I wanted to do whatever I wanted to do. But at the same time, I was marching against the war in Vietnam because I thought it was an immoral war. Now, those things don't work together. And I was actually aware of the conflict at the time. But for me, I didn't care about being consistent. I cared about getting what I wanted. And I think that's the way a lot of people are. But but given this fact that deep down inside, people have this, this awareness that informs these comments and statements and stuff that I mentioned, that morality is objective. There is a standard 
over all human beings. Now the question becomes, what makes what worldview makes sense of that standard or what best explains it? Or another way of putting it is, this moral project, what does it stand on? What's the ground it stands on? I'll use the words because philosophically, this is called the grounding problem. Okay, what best explains the existence of this thing? If there is objective morality, then how do we account for the existence of objective moral, not just moral virtues like kindness and goodness and stuff like that, but obligations? And that's the key. In other words, not only is there a virtue of kindness outside of us, but there is an obligation we have to be kind. We ought to be kind. We ought to be just. We ought not hate. Uh, we ought to show respect to other human beings, all kinds of oughts there. Um, the question then is, where does that oughtness come to, come from, rather? And so this is what, where the, how the, the moral argument is formed, given that there are clear moral obligations that apply to human beings, being careful how I word this because it's easy to misunderstand the claim. So I'm putting it in very precise terms. Given that there seem to be clear moral obligations that apply to human beings, and, and that can be contested. We'll get to some objections. But um, <clears throat> I'm trading on the common sense instinct or intuitions that we have that inform these other statements about the problem of evil and rights and justice and stuff like that. Well, if what you say is actually true, then we have to account for that. And so this is where the moral argument comes in. And it's actually quite simple. It's, a, it's, in the, uh, it's a, for the philosophers and theologians out there, it's a, in the form, uh, it's a logical form called modus uh, talens, I think. And, and it's uh, if, a, if A, then B, not A, therefore not B. That's kind of how it works. But uh, that's formally. But the, the, the substance is simply this. If there is no God, then there is no morality. And here we're talking about objective morality. Obviously, we could have a godless universe and people still have their own individual standards, relativism, okay? But in terms of objective morality, that requires an objective grounding of that and actually a person, because there's obligations involved, to whom are we uh, obliged and who sets the rules? <clears throat> so if there is no God, there's no one to whom we are obliged and there is there are no one setting the rules, Okay. If it's just, you know, molecules and energy in the universe, there is no objective, there's no standard for morality, all right? So that's the first line. If there is no God, there's no objective morality. Second line, but there is objective morality. It's not the case that there is no object. There is. How do we know that? Because we're all aware of it all the time. That's what informs our conversations. That's what informs our complaint about the problem of evil in the world. Okay, and maybe we'll trade on that a little bit more, but just to understand the, the syllogism, the argument. If there is no God, there is no objective morality, but there is objective morality. Therefore, there is a God. Now, that's the moral argument. Um, pretty straightforward, easy to formulate, and um, it really not too difficult. Although, keep in mind, for some people, we're in strange territory parks because we're not talking about the physical world. It's one thing to talk about Big Bang cosmology and the universe coming into existence and look at the intricacy even of the simplest cell and, oh, my goodness, look at that. All these things, the cosmological argument, design argument, 
But when it comes to the moral argument, now you're not you're not using your five senses. You're using a different sense. Now, we use this sense all the time. We have faculties to be aware of things that are not physical. Okay. Well, I'm aware of my thoughts. My thoughts aren't physical. They're not in my brain either. My brain's involved, but my brain is chemistry. My thoughts are propositions. They're different things. So we actually traffic in this world all the time. And every time we talk about justice and fairness and, and uh, the problem of evil and uh, how we might be getting better or that person's worse than he used to be morally, all of these things trade on an awareness of moral, morally real things, moral rules that are true. So um, there's nothing strange about this, really, in terms of our experience. It's only strange when we start talking about it because we're not used to talking about it that way. So um, it turns out that this moral argument, I think, is one of the most powerful arguments for the existence of God because it's very difficult to explain it away. If you deny um, that there is objective morality, then the problem of evil disappears. If you deny that God is necessary for that, then objective morality disappears. So the way I actually leverage this issue, Parks, and I I mentioned a a book, Street Smarts, that's coming out um, later this summer. But I spent a whole chapter talking about this, and the title of the chapter is Evil, Atheism's Fatal Flaw. The problem of evil doesn't destroy theism or Christianity. It destroys atheism. And then I, I, I really expand on that. But this is why I've said often, it sounds funny, I love the problem of evil because this is something that everybody has access to, okay? It doesn't matter where you lived or when you lived, you know something is wrong with the world, all right? It's universal awareness. And, uh, and so we can trade on that as Christian theists to make our case using this argument, as I characterized it, the moral argument for God's existence. Um, If there is no God, there is no objective morality, but there is objective morality. Therefore, there is a God. I think that you can take that one to the bank. I think you can take all three of these to the bank, but this one is especially powerful in my view because it trades on something everyone is completely aware of something's wrong with the world. There is evil in the world. Yeah. And you've, I mean, you've raised uh, a lot of good uh, connections between the moral argument and the problem of evil and, and as well as epistemology and some other things. Um, I, one, one thing that's always fascinated me about the moral argument is, and, and it goes back to kind of, you know, you, you're comparing or you're going back and referring to the cosmological argument, the design argument. And the, these are things that, you know, so, something like the cosmological argument, most people may not really be aware of the, the uh, kind of the basic details of that. You know, most mm-hmm. people kind of going throughout their, their days, they don't, reflect on you know the fact that the universe had a beginning mm-hmm. and what caused that even right. though i think that's really persuasive when it comes to the evidence for god something had to cause that the design can be similar in that um some of the objections to the design argument to me uh they they trade on someone 
not really understanding the argument. And so mm-hmm. they can just dismiss uh, examples of design without really uh, taking the time to understand the argument. Uh, so they can kind of dismiss the cosmological argument and the design argument with uh, what can just be some kind of simplistic dismissals. Uh, yeah, and, and sometimes the, they come back and blind you with science a little bit. They bring in a bunch of speculative stuff that you don't, that rank and file doesn't know how to assess. But uh, that's one of the liabilities of this arguments that based on some kind of external physical things that other people might weigh in on and you don't know how to follow it. But it like, sounds like what you're getting to here is the moral argument is in a very different category because it's so right. directly presented, presentable it, to us. Exactly. Details, it's right? it's uh, People can find a way to um, avoid the details of the cosmological argument. They right. can find a way to avoid the details of the design argument. But the moral argument um, – you can't really avoid morality. Uh, you face it every single day. You face it right. at work. You face it in your own conscience. You face it uh, just when you're listening to the news. Uh, if you know people talk about political opinions, well, poli- you know that all that rests upon morality. That's so, right. It's like you said; those important features of the moral argument. It's it's about uh, bringing uh, the certain crucial features of morality uh, to uh, a level of awareness where you have to ask what explains this as as in is, is morality something that is like uh, your favorite flavor of ice cream? Is it subjective or is it something like the law of gravity? Is it objective? Is it something Mm -hmm. about uh, the world that, that is what it is regardless of what uh, humans may Mm -hmm. believe about it. And I think, well, let me back up and just ask this. Do do you think those like that difference between the moral argument and maybe the cosmological and design arguments? Um, do you think this this detail about morality being kind of uh, in our face all the time? Do you think that makes the moral argument uh, more uh, persuasive to people than the other two arguments? Yeah, I, I think that's a great observation. And I, I do. Um, if they're willing to countenance it, um, because the others entail um, c- kind of some <laughs> knowledge of uh, scientific things, all right? You know, design in the biological realm or the design in physics or design in uh, astronomical issues or something or the origin of the universe. And there's there's counter arguments to these things that the rank and file have a hard time following sometimes. I don't think they're good ones. I think the cosmological arguments and the design arguments really go through. They're the odds on favorite. Let's put it that way. Uh, but but um, there's nothing special that's required regarding the moral argument and your comment that people are making basically moral claims all the time, politics, for example, that, uh, that all politics, uh, it, it, proper politics is about the right use of power. That's the right use of power. So when we look at politics in this country and we say that ain't right, he shouldn't have done that. He, he that was fraud. That was embezzlement. That was, um, uh, you know, he bought the votes, whatever the implication is that this kind of politics is inappropriate. We should be doing something right. There is a law above the law, so to speak. And uh, that was the basis, by the way, for the Nuremberg trials after Second World War, that even though that country, Germany, had their laws and they were following orders, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, there still was a law above those laws that 
needed to govern what they did. And uh, so all of these impulses that we have, uh, rights claims, like we mentioned, um, that ain't right. How many times you've said he got away with murder? Are you kidding me? uh, That is so unjust. All of these comments coming from us bear witness to the fact that we are profoundly in touch, immediately in touch with the moral realm. We know right from wrong, largely. We don't always do it. And by the way, that's another thing. We don't always do what's right. But that's another thing we're all aware of. There is a law that we're obliged to, and we don't keep it. That has other ramifications, you know, for the rest of our story. We'll maybe get to that later. But yeah, I think that the moral argument represents a, a um, um, not simplistic, but a simple uh, way of making a case for God that everyone has direct access to. And uh, the only trick is when sometimes there is kind of a, like a rhetorical challenges to aspects of it, they can be answered. And I, I cover all of those in, in the book, Street Smarts. Um, but we, uh, but, and we'll probably do some of that um, in this interview. They can be answered. But the basic understanding is, is pretty straightforward. You know, uh, moral law needs a moral lawmaker. No duh. And if the law is transcendent over everyone, the only law that's going to be appropriate or adequate or um, legitimate is someone who has the authority over everyone, the, the natural native authority over the universe. Um, and the only candidate for that one is God. I mean, just thinking theoretically, there's only one candidate, God, the one who made everything, you know, and therefore he can speak, um, as to what is required. And, and he's a sovereign. I mean, that's, that's the concept of kingdom. You know, there's a king and a dom, a, 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 a sovereign and his domain and the sovereign, um, is God. And the domain is the world he made. And so that puts him from the Christian, uh, the Christian worldview then provides a, 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 a legitimate understanding of how God could be the appropriate lawmaker accounting for the moral laws that are objectively evident in the universe that we're all aware of. Uh, I've often said this, maybe you've heard me say it on the show, on my own show, you told me you've been off the air that you've been listening for a long time, um, that uh, one of the reasons, probably the most compelling reason taken as a whole, why I believe Christianity, the Christian worldview, Christian understanding of reality is true in the deep sense, like gravity is true, like you mentioned, is because it's the best explanation for the way things are. It, It has tremendous explanatory power. We can explain the origin of the universe. Easy. Okay. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how our story starts. We can explain the design because we have a designer. That makes sense in our worldview. We don't have to come up with cockamamie um, alternative views that are un- unverified. And we can make sense of the moral uh, the, the moral realities that we experience in life and the obligations we're aware of. And we can make sense of our own um, violation of those things. You know, we violate them because we are broken human beings that are given to rebellion. This all fits in our worldview. Our worldview explains all this. That that goes to the question over the issue of the explanatory power of the Christian worldview. And when these pieces of reality, origin of the universe, appearance of design, um, awareness of right and wrong that's objective, when these pieces of reality, th- th- those are things that we are aware of, um, 
they, they all need to be explained in a, anything like a comprehensive worldview. And atheism just can't do that. It, it just can't. It's got to deny morality. It's got to deny design. It's got to deny, you know, a, a, a reasoned origin of the universe. You know, everything came from nothing. But that's wildly counterintuitive. And there are other problems as well. So this all goes to this broader um, approach that, that I've adopted. And I mean, I'm not unique in this way, but it's a way of I'm putting it. Yeah, our view explains things a lot better than all the alternatives. Exactly. And um, yeah, that, that, that gets into um, maybe some different, uh, you know, you could talk about the moral argument being uh, framed in different ways. And I, that's something I want to ask you about, but I, I just want to point out that I, I think it's interesting. You, you raised the idea uh, about uh, moral knowledge, you know, that we mm -hmm. seem that, that we are aware of this realm of reality called moral facts. Right. And, and there's features to the moral facts that we're aware of. Like you mentioned moral obligation. Um, you know, we could say moral progress and, and things like this. Right. And, and we'll, we'll get to those and um, talk about some of that. But I, I just think it's interesting. A lot of people today do think that you cannot really have real evidence for something, or you can't really uh, know something in the real sense of uh, no, like to have mm -hmm. real knowledge about something. You have to be able to uh, empirically test it in some yeah. way. And so yeah. when you get to talking about morality, and especially morality as evidence for God, a lot of people are going to immediately, uh, you know, that's going to be outside of the realm of what they would consider to be uh, I, knowledge. I agree. There is a, the, the philosophers call this what you just described, verificationism. And it's early 20th century stuff that has been completely abandoned because Excuse me. To the idea that in order to hold that something is true, you have to verify it in some empirical way turns out to be self-defeating because that standard itself cannot be verified in any empirical way. Yet they hold it to be true and they apply that rule to other things. It's very popular. And, and even still, there's an impulse of, of people. Oh, yeah, well, you can't know about morality, whatever. And my response is, first of all, verificationism is obviously false because it's self-refuting. And this is why characteristically philosophers don't go there aggressively nowadays. They don't, they don't ex explicitly go there. Now, implicitly, there is this impulse. Well, you can't know that. And, the, and my response is, of course you can. You do. Just think about it. Just reflect. The, 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 uh, the, our five senses give us knowledge, but there's all kinds of other things, ways that we can know something than just our five senses, which is called empiricism. And, um, and so uh, by, by mere reflection, and like we've stated before, these kind of uh, spontaneous responses people give to their environment that are moral, they think that they're saying something meaningful. That's not right. That's unjust. We have to correct that problem. That government is not doing what it ought to be doing. I have my rights. What about the problem of evil in the world? All of these statements that just flow forth from us are based on something we actually know. We observe. And by the way, you don't have to see it with your eyes. I'm looking at this microphone in front of me right now. So I can say that microphone is there because I am perceiving it right now. Now, if some atheist says, no, you're not perceiving it, that's just, I, 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 don't, I, can, I don't have to believe that because I can see it, all right? But I can also perceive 
moral truth. And so can everybody else, unless there's something wrong with them. I mean, every once in a while you get an oddball. But if, if our faculties are operating correctly, then then we can see these things. And uh, William Lane Craig, the Christian philosopher, says, you know, why, why should I doubt my faculty here when it's the moral issues are so obvious just because somebody else says it's not true? I can see it, so to speak. When I say see, I perceive but with a different faculty than my eyes. And by the way, we use that language all the time. Oh, I see what you're getting at. See how they love each other. Wait a minute, you don't see love. You see interaction. You infer love, which is non-physical, from these actions, and properly so. So there's a whole world out there that we are constantly in touch with, but we are told not to believe is real when, when, it, comes to, when, when it, it comes to protecting philosophical turf. And I'm just saying, let's just bank on our natural intuitions about things. And uh, yeah, intuitions can be misleading. And so can physical or physical senses be misleading. You ever stick a pencil in a glass of water? You know, it looks bent. I heard one comedian say, that's why it doesn't take baths. <laughs> but we know we can, we, we can work around uh, our liabilities there in physical assessments. And uh, we can do the same thing with our non-physical ability to make non-physical assessments as well. Right. And I, I think that's such an important point to get. This is just one of the many examples which illustrates why I think it's important. I mean, for all people, but um, Christians in particular should, should be uh, philosophically aware, or at Mm -hmm. least they should know how to reflect upon these things. Mm -hmm. uh, Because when someone objects to morality in some sense, being evidence for God, um, and if you're aware of what's going on philosophically, you can speak to that issue, uh, right. just like, like you said. So I, I think as we're getting into just an overview of the moral argument, I think, you know, we've talked about how th- this argument really, uh, claims that, uh, morality is, uh, objective. It claims Correct. that it's, uh, it's by nature has to be transcendent if it is objective and it claims that there is a a uh, a real realm of moral facts that we have knowledge about, and That's I think right. those are all huge features of morality. That once you start to understand this, um, it it makes sense how morality can function as evidence for God and really good evidence. And uh, it's something that I think maybe a lot of people misunderstand about evidence for God, or you know, just even these classical arguments for God. Mm-hmm. Um, is the the basic one of the basic principles of reasoning? You know, to me, behind them is we are we are reasoning from the effects back to the most adequate yeah. cause. Yeah, that's and, right. Uh, and and I, I think. Yeah, I'm sorry for interrupting. Just want to—I don't want to get too far away from the point you were just making about being philosophically informed. You don't have to get all hoity-toity about it. I mean, I threw out the modus tollens for you know for your philosophical blockheads that are listening, you know, and there's a little ear candy for them. But all, all you need to know is, yeah, there is a right and wrong. It's so obvious. And uh, where's that come from? Well, somebody's got to set the standard. And if this, if right and wrong is over everybody, it's got to be somebody over everybody that sets the standard. I mean, that's pretty straightforward without getting into a lot of philosophy. But essentially, what I just described in much more accessible terms is the moral argument. That's right. Um, so one one uh, one philosopher, Doug Grotice, he he frames. Um, you know, if you're going to to lay lay out uh, the basic logic of the moral argument. 
he talks about how first you you need to establish uh, moral realism. And mm-hmm. moral realism is just the it's the idea that we've been talking about mm-hmm. um, that morality is um, that that there is a real realm of moral facts that we can right. know that it's not just uh, uh, internal to us as knowers it's actually a part of the world uh, so so that's the first step you know that he would say is you, sure. you you have to establish moral realism then you argue that a a personal and moral God is the best explanation. Uh, for that moral reality, right? Um, is that the same way that you would approach it? It sounds sure. Like it's b- b- very similar. It is. I know Doug. He's a great philosopher. You know, he's at Denver Seminary, and uh, and th- this is right. So we have to establish the fact of morality here in the objective sense, and philosophers call that moral realism. And what they mean is that moral obligations are real. <laughs> they're objective. They're outside of us. So maybe at this point, it's it's fair, it would be good to make a more precise distinction between relativism and objectivism, okay? So relativism, all forms, we're, we're, we're talking about the area of morality here, but relativism can be much more expansive and apply to all kinds of different areas. Uh, even science now is being assaulted by relativism. But relativism is a take on what it means for a thing to be true, okay? Um, And the simplest way that I found to describe this is what I call the inside-outside distinction, okay? If when you say something is true, you are talking about something inside of you, that is, you're talking about your thoughts or your own convictions or your own feelings or your own opinions. In other words, if the truth is, of the statement is secured by something inside of you, the subject, that's called subjectivism, also relativism. So when somebody says, that's true for me, because I believe it, notice they're saying it's true in the sense that they believe it. So the truth is resident inside of them. Okay. And uh, this is, you mentioned ice cream earlier, you know, yeah. Haagen-Dazs butter pecan ice cream is delicious. I used to use that as a regular example, but people started sending me Haagen-Dazs butter pecan, and now I hate it. So in any event, <laughs> uh, I don't actually hate it, but the, there, is a, there is a truth that is secured by something inside of a person by their tastes or their preferences. Okay, So that's a subjective truth because it's true for the subject. It may not be true for somebody else. Two different people could have totally opposite views on that and both be equally true for them. Okay. Now, uh, you also mentioned gravity a few moments ago. Gravity is different, though. You know, gravity, when we say it's, gravity is true, we're not talking about something inside of us. Uh, we're talking about something out there. It, it, it's something in the world. Because if you don't believe in gravity, you're not going to float away, right? It's some external reality that is there whether you agree with it or not, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not. That's irrelevant. Philosophers would call that mind independent. Is grass green? Well, if 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 there's grass that has the color green associated with it, it is. That's true. If grass is green, it doesn't matter if you think so or not. It doesn't matter if you see it or not. It doesn't change anything. So we have the contrast here between subjectivism, which is a thing is true if I believe it or like it, whatever, inside of me. And I'm going to come back to this point later because it, it 
it's necessary to understand that to deal with a, a big objection to the moral argument that, that we'll talk about. But subjectivism is is the, the, the truth is determined by something inside of the subject. Object, if mind dependent, objectivism, the truth is determined by something outside of the subject or person. It is mind independent. It is what it is regardless, okay? So that's subjective truth and objective truth. Now, the claim here for the moral argument is that morality is the second kind of thing, not the first kind of thing. People can have preferences about all kinds of stuff, but there are certain moral standards that seem to govern the universe, and they are outside of the person. Now, this is what Dr. Grotheis was talking about when he referred to moral facts or moral realism. Morality is mind independent with regards to us. And uh, so that's the distinction there. And that really is the second premise of the argument, that that there is objective morality. There are moral facts, even if people disobey them or even if people don't agree with them or don't believe them. They still exist, independent of someone's opinion. Greg, I think that's uh, that, that distinction between uh, between relativism and objectivism uh, is is so important. And I, I think you know, for someone – uh, if if somebody's first trying to get their head around this argument, that 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 is the the crucial distinction to understand mm-hmm. that the moral argument is is claiming it's mm-hmm. it's approaching morality from the the point that that it is something uh, real and uh, it is what it is, independent of what people believe or prefer. And if if that is true. That does have huge implications about yeah. where morality comes from, and uh, those—it seems to me—those are the only, those are the only uh, two options when it comes That's to right. what morality is. It's either something that humans have somehow created, or that has—and and we'll talk about this—but it's either something humans have somehow created just by pragmatic necessity, or it's something that emerged from biological evolution in some fashion, right. or it's something that is a part of reality that requires a transcendent explanation. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I do think that's a very uh, important distinction mm-hmm. to get. Um, By the now, way, another way of thinking about moral realism is, you use this phrase, but moral facts. So if something is objective, it's a fact. It's a fact of the world. If something is subjective, it is simply my personal feelings, taste, or opinions. Now, once again, the inside-outside distinction. That's right. That's right. Um, so one one important aspect of this, you know, now that we've kind of talked about how morality uh, is it, at least the moral agar- moral argument is claiming that it's objective, it's transcendent, it's real, we can know it. Um, we're, we're we're trying to say that this this argument is making a connection between right. that kind of morality, which we're aware of, and the existence of a of a moral and personal God. And so uh, one, one last kind of area that I want to explore before we get into some objections to the moral argument is um, in, in what sense in your view does morality uh, depend upon God? And, and kind of the second part of that question would be kind of in a general sense, how does morality depend upon God? Um, And Another angle on that is that some are going to talk about, like you mentioned, moral obligation. They're mm-hmm. going to say a very important feature of the moral argument and morality in general is this idea of moral obligation. And so help us understand how uh, 
morality connects to God and especially yeah. like what 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 is this idea of moral obligation and why is it so important? Okay, so there's there's actually two steps going on here and they're very um uncontroversial steps that we use these steps all the time when we try to discover things about the, our world. We observe something and then we ask what best explains it. And the best is really important because you may have alternate explanations and some just are going to be better than others. They seem to be more adequate for explaining the effect that we're observing. Now, science does this all the time, but we do this in our normal life all the time too. We are truth seekers by nature, and uh, this is one way we assess. So what is it that we're observing? Well, we observe that morality is real, to put it simply, for the reasons that I've expressed. And this was not controversial culturally uh, up until about 40 years ago. And then then it became more and more, con now it's very controversial. And, and I mean, this is to think of the gender thing. Gender has nothing to do with uh, your body on the outside. Gender has to do with your mind on the inside. I mean, just to give you one contemporary example, this is huge. This is everywhere. <clears throat> but it's just another uh, a good example of the inside-outside distinction. And what matters is the inside, not the outside. Okay. So um, what we're doing, though, is we're observing here that morality seems to be um, a, a, a real feature of the world. And um, the and, and to deny it put you in lots of strange situations because then you have to let go of your rights claims. You have to let go of all your moral judgments. Uh, and I, I wrote a book with Frank Beck with a uh, professor of philosophy over at Baylor now, uh, what, 25 years ago called Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair. It's still available. And uh, I talk about seven fatal flaws. If relativism is true, this is what you're facing. And this is like, there, there's no problem of evil. There's no moral improvement. There's no, nobody ever did anything wrong. Um, you, you, no tolerance obligation, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And this is really, these are the bullets you have to bite if you're going to deny moral realism. So if you want to do that, you're welcome to it. But have good luck trying to live consistently with that. People, people want to be relativists themselves, no rules guiding them, but they don't want anybody to be relativistic towards them, you know. So uh, it's true for me, but not for you. You can't do that kind of thing. So, uh, so given moral realism, then we're asking the question, well, well, what best explains that? Where does that come from? And a lot of people respond, well, it's just common sense. Common sense. All I can do is be like, I know what's right and what's wrong. It's common sense. Okay. But I want to make an observation here. And now this is a more refined philosophical observation, but it's a real important distinction. To say that it's common sense tells you how you know morality. It doesn't tell you where it comes from. Okay, let me say it again. It tells you how you know morality. You mentioned epistemology earlier. That's what that is, our knowledge. How you know it. It doesn't, doesn't tell you where it comes from or what gives it its incumbency or obligation. Okay, simple illustration. Um, I got 35 miles an hour speed limit in front of my house here in Thousand Oaks, California. All right. Um, so if I say, uh, uh, where did that law come from? Somebody says, well, it's obvious. There's the speed limit sign. I said, yes, but what if I put up a speed limit sign and I put it up and said it's 25 miles out? Would I have to obey it? No. Why not? Because you aren't the one who makes the laws around here. Oh, so the speed limit sign tells you what the speed limit is, but it doesn't tell you why you have to obey it. 
you have to, <coughs> excuse me, obey it because there is a an authority above it that made the sign to begin with. I'm not that authority, but the community government is. Makes perfect sense. So that's the distinction between how you know, that's the speed limit sign, and where the law comes from or what makes the law legitimate or obligatory. That requires someone above. So when I say, look at all these things that we believe in, where did it come from? Okay. Um, And that requires a source adequate to the task. That's the key, explanatory power. Now, the uh, form, the, the, the atheist Christopher Hitchens, uh, who's now gone, he died six or seven years ago, famous atheist, one of the new atheists, used to say, you show me one thing, good thing, that you can do as a believer in God that I can't do as an atheist. And so he's make, trying to make the point that morality is, that God is not necessary for morality, okay? Now, there are two responses to this, and I, I detail these both in Street Smarts. Um, the first one is, you can't glorify God, <laughs> which, by the way, is the summum bonum. It's the greatest good from a Christian perspective. So minimally, he said, well, of course I can. That doesn't matter to me. Okay, I get it. But it, at least it shows that belief in God at least for a Christian. And a belief in no God dictates a different set of morality, moral obligations. That's the first thing. Okay. Secondly, um, when Christopher Hitchens says that I can do the good things that you do uh, without belief in God, which I believe he can without belief in God, but he can't do them without God. Okay. And um, my illustration is, Christopher Hitchens used to um, uh, write for Vanity Fair, for example. And so what if I said, um, uh, I didn't, be- I don't believe in, I-, I subscribe to Vanity Fair. I get to read his articles, but I do not believe in writers. Writers don't exist. And he might say, well, wait a minute. I wrote that. I'm a writer. I exist. And I say, you, I can read this article just as well as you can read that. You believe in writers. You think you are one. I don't believe in writers, but I can read it just as well as you can. Well, you you can see now that my comment has missed the point. The point isn't whether I have the capability of doing something according to some instructions or patterns. It's where the thing came from to do in the beginning. This is what Hitchens misses. Okay. Um, you can you don't have to have any beliefs about writers or uh printer presses or newsboys or magazine periodicals or anything to be able to read. But if there were no writers, there would be nothing to read. So it turns out that writers are logically prior to reading. Christopher Hitchens, a brilliant guy, completely misses the point. Okay. But the point applies here to morality. Okay. The question isn't whether Christopher Hitchens can do the same motions that Christians can do that we call good. The question is whether those motions are good for anyone if there is no God. If there, look at if there's no government, you can still drive 35 miles an hour past my house, but you wouldn't be a law-abiding citizen. You'd just be going 35. In the same way, uh, Christopher Hitchens, if there is no God, he could be kind to people. Kind would be a virtue. What kindness would be would be a kind of action, a certain action. Okay, he could do that. He could pay his taxes. He could whatever that we call appropriate virtuous, but it wouldn't be good. The Christian could do it too, and it wouldn't be good 
if their belief in God was false. So belief in God is not necessary to do right things, either for the Christian or for the for the non-Christian, but God is necessary for there to be right things to do to begin with, for either the Christian or the non-Christian. So this gets to the point now, given that we observe morality, that we have a faculty, common sense, might people might say, rationality, they might say, that allows us to perceive it. Then the question is, what best explains it? And this is where one of the things that we observe, we talked about it already, uh, Parks, is that a feature of morality is obligation. <laughs> In other words, morality just doesn't sit out there like a sign, kindness, but rather we have an obligation to do those things, to be kind. And incidentally, it appears that those obligations attach themselves only to human beings, not to other creatures. You know, a lion eats a, eats a gazelle. We don't say bad lion. It's just what they do. Okay. Maybe it kills the gazelle and leaves it there to rot. We don't say that's not a good use of, human re- of, of natural resources. It, it's just what they do. But if a human does that, we object because we understand that moral obligations apply to humans in a way they don't apply to animals. Okay. So these are what I'm doing is now reasoning from an effect that we are aware of. And, uh, and that effect is, or that feature of the world is objective morality, real morality. And then we're asking, what is the best explanation? And obligations are held between persons. I don't have an obligation to objects. Okay. It's held between persons. And so there must be a person that transcends everything else that is the appropriate authority, back to the government illustration, that grounds or is responsible for or best explains the existence of the moral facts that we're obliged to obey. That's that Everything fits nicely. Of course, part of that equation is God, and people don't like that. So they're going to try to get rid of God, and they're going to say, well, this doesn't really work. But it does work. It works perfectly, okay? That's how the moral argument works and how it, we can, from moral facts, infer properly the existence of a good God who grounds those moral obligations. Yeah, I, I love those illustrations with the, uh, with, with the, the speed limit, and I, I forget the second one that you used. Writers. Uh, Writers, yeah, yeah. I I think that makes readers. <laughs> yeah, I I think that makes a very very important point about uh, what the moral argument is claiming. Um, uh, I heard from uh, I I read um Stephen Meyer's book Return of the God Hypothesis, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. and in that book he talks about how one of his uh, PhD supervisors uh, always told him beware the sound of one hand clapping, and he, <laughs> and he used that illustration to say. You know, always be aware that there's two sides to every argument, and uh-huh. the the only way that you're going to really know how good an argument is is how well it stands up to the counter arguments against right. it. And so, um, I've I've just always been fascinated by the moral argument. And so, one one thing I've really tried to do is uh, is to take seriously, um, you know, first understand the argument, and then two. Uh, look at what uh, people's objections are to it and tr- try to look at the best ones. And right. the point that you made about uh, the the distinction between uh, our, our ability to recognize that something is good 
or or to know that it's good or to uh, to do something that's good, to be kind or um, that is a, a separate thing from what makes the thing good that you're mm-hmm. referring to. And right. every I, I, I would say up to this point, every single counter argument or, uh, you know, counter explanation for morality that I've seen always runs into that that flaw it's 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 starting with something that we recognize as good and that you know most the majority of people would say yeah that's a good thing starts with something like that and then tries to build a moral system off of that and never giving a real um never giving a real explanation for why the thing they started with is good and yeah, um, the grounding right exactly and mm-hmm. um so maybe maybe we can uh we can move into now just looking at a few objections to the moral argument. Right. Um, you, you've already addressed one, which is not a very serious objection, but a lot of people raise it. And it's just the idea that you don't need to believe in God to be a moral person. And so right. we've already kind of talked about yeah. that. That's and the distinction there is it's it, the problem isn't belief in God. It's the existence of God. If God doesn't exist, then nobody can be good because there's no standard. But if God does exist, even people then gives a standard, even people who don't believe in him can keep the standard back to the reading illustration too. So that's the, that's the distinction that's important. Right. Exactly. Um, so you, you mentioned, um, you, you mentioned relativism earlier, uh, but most, most philosophers are going to distinguish between two types of relativism, although they're definitely related uh, cultural relativism and then individual relativism yeah. or subjectivism. I, right. I want to look at a, an objection to the moral argument based in cultural relativism. Sure. So, you know, it may go like this. Um, morality is dependent uh, upon human culture. And so, therefore, it's not something transcendent or objective. Uh, transcendent moral codes must be rejected because this results in a kind of uh, some people would say an intolerant dogmatism towards those who yeah. disagree. And the the way that I've seen morality relativized to cultures is uh, people like anthropologists, you know, they, right. they, they would say your moral judgments and your, your, your perception of what is moral is, is rooted and it's shaped by the culture that you're in. And so they use the analogy and they compare it to language, and they would say if you uh, if you go to different cultures, um, they have uh, many times different languages, different ways of uh, referring to things, um, and so morality is like this as well. They would say so we can't say that any given language is better than um, anyone else's. It's just that's the language of culture A, and then you have the language of culture B. Um, so because you can't say any language is better, they would say morality is in the same boat. You can't say that any one culture's morality is any better than another. And Mm -hmm. maybe an example of this could be, um, you go to India and there Hinduism is very prominent and you have the idea of the caste system and people who are on the very bottom part of the, the caste are, uh, People see them as getting uh, basically what they deserve because of their karmic debt, you know, from their past uh-huh. life. And so right. people don't intervene to help people suffering like that because they would say that's the moral thing. They deserve to suffer. And But people in the West, in America, 
you know, may balk at that kind of treatment and say, you know, you can't just uh, refuse to help people who are in need. But um, so this would be a difference between the morality in somewhere like India related to the caste system and then in the West. So um, how would you how would you respond to that idea of uh, cultural relativism? Well, well, there's a there's a lot to say about this. And uh, this first of all, language is conventional. Okay, we it's clear that we make up the sounds and the tokens to represent other things. So I could say table in English, or I could say mesa. Okay, Spanish. All right, it's it, it, it. We we're referring to the same thing, but the way that we refer to it is just a, based on a convention. What's interesting about this comparison is that what what the person who makes this particular point raises this objection is doing is to say that our convictions about what's right and wrong are no different than different sounds we might use to describe different objects, okay? So uh, now that strikes me as rather extreme, all right? So, so just I'm just making that observation. Uh, uh, there are some other there are problems with it. One of them came out right away. If you think your morality in your culture is better than somebody else's morality, and you don't realize that morality is just a matter of subjective preference by groups of people, cultures, then that can make you dogmatic and intolerant. Now, notice that person speaking out of both sides of their mouth. On the one hand, they're affirming moral relativism. And on the other hand, they're saying that intolerance is an objective moral wrong. Because my question is going to be in my tactical style asking questions, what's wrong with intolerance? Well, that's not right. Says who? Your grandmother? Did you just make that up? Why are you imposing your morality on me right now if you don't think that's appropriate? Okay, so I mean, for, for a long time, this, maybe you remember this apartheid in South Africa. You're old enough probably to remember that. It was a big deal, a cause celeb uh, by a lot of people in this country. Now, apartheid is over with now in South Africa, but notice that was a different culture. And it, nobody who objected to apartheid said, well, that's their culture, that's the way they do it, and that's their moral viewpoint. Who are we to say? No, all these relativists were campaigning against apartheid because they realized that there was a a moral rule that went above the cultures that you're describing. Okay, but I want to make another observation. There's an actually a fundamental. So not only is this contradictory the way you characterize it, and that's the way it's often characterized. Um, there are implicit appeals to objective morality smuggled in there. But but there's there's another problem, and the problem is since the, the the claim here is that morality is culturally determined, and if there weren't any cultures, there wouldn't be any morality. So here's my question: What about science? If there were no cultures, would there be no would there be no scientific facts about the world? Now they might not be uh, discovered, of course characterized, uh, quantified, whatever. But would would gravity still be gravity? Of course it would be. Okay. So it takes a culture uh, using its conventional language to look at the nature of reality and draw conclusions about why the world is the way it is. We don't simply dismiss that and say, well, that's their culture, their cultural belief. Without that culture, they wouldn't believe that. Okay. Uh, People can believe false things, no questions. Uh, there, for a long time, people thought the earth was flat. 
And then you had people say, no, it's not flat, it's round. And they actually have believed that for a long time because you can see a, the solar eclipse. No, the, the lunar eclipse. Is that right? Whatever. You can see the shadow of the earth on the moon. Is that right? Okay, the lunar. The point is they, they, they knew this for a long time, but a lot of people didn't believe it. Now, n- notice you have some communities that believe the earth is round and you have some communities that believe the earth is flat. Because you have a difference of opinion between the two communities on the shape of the earth, does that mean the earth has no shape? Of course not. This is the biggest mistake of of trying to um, uh, justify relativism in a cultural sense by looking at differences of opinion. This tells you about anthropology. It doesn't tell you anything about morality. Okay, you you certainly cultures can influence um, the way. We think about things. There's no question about that. And so you're going to have those differences. But that doesn't tell you anything at all about the reality of morality. All right. Just because a culture, some cultures believe sickness is from demons. Other cultures, primitive cultures, other cultures, they, they learn that sickness is a result of, of uh, bacteria or something like that. So, so who's right? They get differences. There is no right answer. No, we don't say that. That's silly. But we do that with cultures when it comes to morality, all right? Now, when you look actually closer at the the, the cultures parks, it's kind of interesting. You mentioned uh, uh, Hindu culture, for example, and the caste system. Um, so they have they have these views influenced by their culture and their. But sometimes, sometimes, once you get past the superficial differences, underneath there is a a a much more profound moral notion that we share in common. So for example, um, Hindus don't eat cattle. All right. I've been to Madras, India, and there's cattle all over the place. You know, they're just wandering everywhere. Um, no, so they don't eat cattle. Now in, in America, we don't eat grandma. Cannibalism is wrong. Okay. Uh, but, uh, but we eat meat, we eat cows. They don't eat cows. You know, you know, the reason they don't eat cows is because they think the cow may be grandma because of reincarnation. So underneath these difference of facts is a moral conviction that it's wrong to eat grandma, <laughs> you know. And it turns out there's a lot of things that are like that. C.S. Lewis gave a whole list of, uh, in the abolition of man in the back, I think, whole list of moral principles that are held by every culture. Okay. Now, the fact that they're held by every culture doesn't prove objectivism. Um, I it, We'd run into the same problem with cultural differences too, but but I think that does suggest that morality doesn't vary as much as people think it does. Okay, and even where it does vary, that doesn't tell us uh, about the moral grounding of those beliefs. Um, so uh, it, it, it just because there's a difference of opinion doesn't mean that nobody's right on this issue. So that, that's a significant flaw in that approach. Yeah, all that's all that's really good, Greg. Uh, I I I agree. I think um, it it reminds me of how sometimes when people say, "Well, there's uh, people believe in God or they believe in religion because it provides them with psychological comfort," sure. as if as if that just explains away religious belief and mm-hmm. shows it's irrational. It's like yeah. something similar uh, to me goes on when people just point to uh, what may be differences of expressions of moral principles between mm-hmm. cultures. And they think that just if you point to that, show that maybe there's some differences here. This shows that 
morality is completely relative and it, it just doesn't follow that that's the case. Right. This is, um, there's an informal fallacy in play here. It's called the genetic fallacy. And, and fancy word, all it means is that you fault a view based on its origin. And so an atheist might say, uh, I've heard him say it, you know, you're a Christian because you live in a Christian country. If you lived in India, you wouldn't be a Christian. You'd be a Hindu. Okay. So notice that the fault, the, he's faulting religious, some claim to religious truth based on the environment that the individual who believes, that's the the source, the genesis of it, uh, is in. And so that tells you, but that tells you about anthropology. It doesn't tell you anything about God. And to show how, to give a, a, an obvious counter or a counter to show how obviously flawed this is, my response to the atheist is, well, if you were lived in India, you wouldn't be an atheist. Does that mean atheism is false? No, of course not. He's not going to buy that. And he ought not because that's irrelevant. It doesn't matter your psychological motivation. So maybe I believe in God because it makes me feel better. Okay. Just the genetic fallacy again. Freud said that basically and others too. Uh, But, you know, yeah, Christianity does make me feel better. So what? doesn't mean it's false. Medicine makes me feel better too. It doesn't mean it isn't doing its job. This is irrelevant to the truth of of any religious claims that we make. They have to be decided on some other basis than what we gain from it. That's the genetic fallacy. And a, another point, too, that, that that you touched on is that uh, re- relativism is not livable. You know, whether you're talking about on an individual level, someone can claim that morality is completely subjective. Everyone determines what's moral. As soon as someone crosses them in a way they don't deem moral. That's right. And then they react to it. So that shows on an individual level. On a cultural level, too, though, um, you know, you you mentioned the uh, trial of Nuremberg with the Nazis. You know, they, if I'm not mistaken— uh, the the Nazi leaders on trial, they did try to make some sort of appeal to justify what they did by appealing to their culture. That's and of right. course, uh, the, the tribunal who was, uh, you know, putting them on trial didn't buy that because they, they recognize, you know, you've, however you want to phrase it, crimes mm-hmm. against humanity. I mean, you've, you've done something that's violated a, a transcendent objective moral mm-hmm. order and you have to be held accountable to this. And also we think about um, figures like Martin Luther King. Yes. uh uh, People would say Gandhi. uh, Just you look throughout history, people who have been within a culture, they've recognized uh, something, uh, you know, within the culture um, that that is being approved by the majority and maybe even justified by laws. And yet they oppose it. That's right. So if morality is, if it's either decided by the culture, created by the culture, um, or relative between cultures, you would have to look at someone like Martin Luther King and say, you know, he he did something uh, immoral because yeah. he went against the culture. And I think that's also really significant. That's a great observation, Parks. They actually call this the the reformer's dilemma because remember, on this view, it is the culture that where the book stops morally. Whatever the culture says, that's the standard. The majority rules, basically. But that means the majority can never be wrong because being right just is based on the majority rule, essentially. And so therefore, when you have a reformer like Gandhi or by uh, Reverend Martin Luther King stand up and and object to the status quo, he is doing so based on a higher principle. And so he's asking for reform. But on this view, 
Martin Luther King would be immoral because he's going against the standard. And the, the, the best hot button on this one right now is gay rights. Because for years and years and years, decades, there was a certain way of approaching culture, approaching the issue of homosexuality. And uh, if the culture is the final word, then we can't complain that there was anything immoral about that because the culture is the defining factor. But people did raise issues because it seemed that there was a violation of basic human rights that were involved. Notice how they're appealing to something above the culture in order to demand cultural change. This is happening all the time now. Okay. Once again, where we started our conversation, even though people make a lot of noise about relativism, they make a lot of relativistic noise. Still, they can't get away from the fact that there are human beings made in the image of God, and they are deeply and profoundly in touch with, with the reality of moral principles that are part of the objective world, and they trade on these things all the time. So this is the morals, the uh, reformer's dilemma is another example of why this explanation of the moral project is not going to work. And, uh, you know, most people are going to, as as they reflect upon uh, the, I mean, you've mentioned apartheid in South Africa, and we, we've talked about a few other issues as well that, you know, most people are going to look back on those things and say, we have we are better off yes. morally because that situation does not obtain that's right now and so that brings in the idea of moral progress if that's right. if morality is you know just subjective or relative to culture then where does the idea of moral progress come from and how do you even measure that yeah. we don't we're not getting any closer in our so-called moral progress if you're a relativist to a better way of living we are simply changing so moral progress all it is is change from one view to another. It can't be better because in order to be better, you have to have an external standard of good that you're more closely approximating as you change your behavior. But moral progress seems to be you know, so obvious on an individual level and a cultural level. Um, but that can't be the case if morals are relative, like you pointed out. And do you, do you think um, another implication of a relativistic view uh, may be that, you know, some people would say if, you know, if you take relativism uh, to its logical conclusion, you end up with uh, moral nihilism, which right. nihilism is just that that's a view that says that basically life has no meaning. There's no there's no real morality, right. just kind of everything's up for grabs and there's no purpose. And so do you think that's true? Does relativism? No, lead no to, I agree that the moral hero of relativism. In other words, the person who lives out the principles of relativism most thoroughly, especially when it comes to individual ethical relativism. Morality is up to me, and that's where the culture is now. The moral hero is a sociopath, is a person who has no um, conscience. All he's interested in is what he wants, or to put it um, sloganistically, you do you. <laughs> which is the battle cry of the age, of course. But that's, that's what uh, sociopaths, how can, how can a moral system be? How can you call a, a moral system a legitimate, good, appropriate moral system when its most excellent exemplar is a sociopath, the one who lives most consistently to the beat of his own moral drum and ignores what other people think is right or wrong? So that's, a, that's a huge problem. I agree. Uh, 
Um, and I think I, I, I think it's an important implication for people to see, like, you know, if, if, if you are going to adopt relativism, uh, this is where it logically leads. I mean, of course, that doesn't mean everyone who's a relativist is going to be a sociopath, right. obviously. Uh, but it's just if you're thinking through your beliefs uh, and, and the logical implications of them, you, you have to reckon sure. with that. You're free to be that according to the dictates of your moral code. You're free to be that. You may not all do that. It's like atheists. You look at the, the you know, the greatest murderers and, and uh, um, uh, genocidal leadership was all been atheists in the 20th century. You know, Lenin, Stalin, Mao, you know, they're communists. They, they were atheists. Well, I'm not implying that atheists are going to all do that. But my question is, what is the moral principle inherent to atheism that inveighs against that? And the answer is there isn't any because there's no moral principle inherent to atheism. Okay. So even though they don't choose to do that, there is nothing from stopping them morally in their system from doing that. They are allowed to do that after a fashion rationally because there are no moral principles that inveigh against it. Well, um, I think two, two other significant objections uh, to the moral argument you know, before we move on to the last section here would be uh, one would be what's uh, classically called the Euthyphro dilemma. And it yeah. just it it refers back to a dialogue of uh, Plato, the philosopher. He recorded this dialogue between uh, Socrates and this guy named Euthyphro um, talking about what morality is, basically. And, and so oftentimes, at least as far as I've seen, many skeptics think this is the nail in the coffin for the moral argument. Mm -hmm. um, and and it usually it usually goes something like this, you know, it's framed in a question. It says, um, does God command something because it is good or is something good because God commands it? And so the mm -hmm. dilemma here that, that this is bringing out, um, is that if God commands something because it is good, well, that seems to uh, that seems to show that goodness is independent of God somehow, right. which would be a problem. Or mm -hmm. uh, if something is good simply because God commands it, well, then this would seem to make morality arbitrary because That's God right. could just command whatever he wants. Right. Like if, God, right. if, if God commanded that murder was moral, then it'd be moral. But, you know, it just turns out he said it's not. So it's not. So um, how would you respond to that? Actually, there's a very simple solution to this, though it still comes up a lot. It was solved a long, 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 long time ago. Uh, Thomas Aquinas had a solution. And, and I remember hearing this for the very first time. J.P. Moreland brought it up in a class I was taking from him. And it occurred to me right away the way to get around this. So this is not tricky at all. Okay, not, as you pointed out, if a thing is good because God commands it, that reduces goodness to his power. It's called voluntarism, by the way. It's a certain version of divine command theory. And uh, we, we are, we are, God could say rape is wrong today, and then tomorrow he could say rape is good. And so it's all arbitrary. So then it questions whether anything is actually good in that sense, um, if goodness is reduced to his power. But the alternative puts goodness outside of God, makes him incumbent upon that. And then, of course, the same question could be asked if he's, if there's some other standard that he's weighing in at, the thing is good, not because he says it, but he says it because it's good, then where did that standard come from? And then where did that standard come from? And then where the, so now you're in, in a vicious regress. Notice, by the way, if Euthyphro goes through, okay, you are stuck with relativism because there's no objective standard and all the other counterintuitive things that come with it that we've been talking about. Okay. So what we're looking for 
is a way to secure um, objectivism against the Euthyphro dilemma. And it's actually quite simple. Uh, God doesn't say a thing is a good, a thing isn't good because God says it just in virtue of his raw power and command. It is, he says it because it's good, but the standard is not outside of God. That gets you in this infinite regress. The standard is actually inside of God. The standard is God's own character. Now, that's a that's a completely legitimate response, all right? And what it does is it, it splits the horns of the dilemma, okay? It, it shows there's a third option, and the third option is that God's character is good. And by the way, if God's character is not good, there is no other option. There's no other source of goodness, and therefore goodness doesn't exist. But that's just... That, that, that's so counterintuitive. So what we're doing here in answering this objection is we're sticking with our natural intuitions about the nature of the world, being moral, and all the other things that we trade on that require objective morality. We run into this little difficulty. We say, well, there's an answer to this. And the answer must be the right one because it is nothing contradictory about it, nothing tricky about it, but it is a way that then also secures not just objective goodness, but also the goodness of God himself, which is core to the Christian worldview. So it's either this answer or none other. This is the only answer. God himself is good, and, and he's, not, he's not arbitrary. His, his commands come from the goodness of his own nature. It's not, he's not capable of doing bad. And, uh, and, and we have a, an ability to, to see the goodness there uh, of God in his commands, in his law. In fact, the, the law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul. There's all, Psalm 19. It's got all these wonderful verses. And, um, and, and, and identifying the, the goodness of the law itself because of the goodness of God who gives us the law. And Greg, I think uh, reflecting, you know, oftentimes when we, when we reflect upon objections to, uh, you know, the moral argument in this case, but any, any argument, it really brings out more important features of it. And I think what, what you're getting at in answering this question is um, when you think about the reply to this dilemma, this objection, it, it shows you how uh, morality is connected to the nature and the person of God in right. a very important way. Um, now, some I I have read one atheist that pushes back against even this response that you've been discussing, that and, and that's that uh, morality comes from God's own essential nature. God, God in his own essential nature is perfectly good. So all his commands uh, flow from that perfectly good nature of, of love and goodness. And at least one atheist that I read pushes back, and he says that basically you can just apply the same dilemma to that solution. And so um, you can ask, uh, is, is God good? Uh, because to be good just is to be whatever God is, or is God good because God has all the properties of goodness? So how would you answer that? I mean, well, do, I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what the, he's getting at, but I, I would say that uh, when it comes to goodness, you, you uh, at some point you have to acknowledge that there's there's a primitive quality to it, okay? Uh, sooner or later in all of these areas of knowledge, you have to stop at some foundational place 
or else you're back into these kind of regresses that go forever. Okay. Uh, then you can never know anything, but obviously we do know some things and we know some things about morality and this seems to be pretty obvious. And so therefore, um, there's got to be some foundational thing. Okay. Some, some primitive or it's, it's, it's right there at the, at the base. Um, and, uh, that's what I'm saying about God. Okay. God does have those qualities of goodness. Okay. Well, what makes them good? Because they're good. Uh, and I don't, it, it, and I think goodness is something that we have the capacity to observe and to see. I was referring to it a few moments ago. Um, just, just like we have the, the, um, ability to, um, perceive other things that exist. Okay. Um, there's beauty. I think beauty is, I, I actually think beauty is an objective feature. There are subjective elements to this, but, um, everybody can acknowledge the uh, certain standards of beauty that are objective. Okay. But we behold these things. Okay. And, and we, we, that's, there's a primitive quality about beauty. And, um, and I think the same thing is about goodness. Uh, Part of it, too, is that we, we don't have many other choices. It, it, you can lob all kinds of um, shots across the bow here of these arguments, but that, that, that you, you, have to, you have to resolve this some way. You've got to come to a conclusion. And if you're coming to a conclusion that, 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 leaves, that is completely counterintuitive uh, with our experience of reality, well, it's probably the wrong conclusion. So what we're looking for is a conclusion that is consistent with our experience of reality, that, it, it, that is, a, is a straightforward, adequate explanation for that. And grounding morality in the character of God so that God's character is essentially good. He has those qualities. And then that does the job. And how do we, well, how do we know it's good? Because we know it's good. We can see it. Th that's the stopping point. There's a foundation. And if it's not that answer, then there is no answer. I, there is no other answer. Um, some people have offered, atheists have offered um, what, what they call a moral um, um, Platonism. Okay, now, Platonism is the idea that you have these perfect forms in the immaterial world. Okay, and, uh, and so with regards to morality, you might have a, the perfect, perfect form in the abstract realm of goodness or justice or mercy or things like that. Um, so now that's, for atheists, they have to abandon their materialism if that's their view, because now we're talking about abstract objects that are real uh, and they're not physical. Okay, that's all right. Some will hold that. Oh, well, they hold these abstract objects. But notice that abstract objects are inert. They don't do anything. They're just kind of there. The nature of abstract objects is just to be. They don't command anything. It takes a person to command. Okay, and so moral Platonism isn't going to work as an explanation because it doesn't explain what needs to be explained, which is the obligatory nature of moral facts, and and that they apply to human beings. How do they happen to attach to us and not to others? Now, the Christian or the theistic view, broadly put, does explain that in a way that's completely coherent. Okay, and it's interesting that people are always trying to find these ways out. I mean, there's one other way out we haven't talked about yet, and I hope we have time to get to it, and that's the, the Darwinistic uh, evolutionary uh, rejoinder, which is the biggie. But they're trying to find all these ways out to get rid of God when it seems like he's such an appropriate, apt, sufficient explanation. Well, yeah, but there's, there's baggage that comes with. It's called bending the knee, you know, and that's what people don't want to do. Yeah, I, I think um, an important question to uh you know, it, any any objection to 
the moral argument or any other argument for God, uh, you, you have to ask, um, you have to ask what, what is the alternative being proposed? Right. Because this youth for dilemma, I think what you're getting at is that, um, there is a certain appropriate, uh, foundational element to moral reality, moral mm-hmm. properties that, um, that requires a certain kind of explanation, which is a personal and moral God makes the best sense of our moral right. experience. And if you are going to get to a point where you're going to criticize that foundational element, you're going to have to propose something else in its place. Mm-hmm. And then right. we have to ask, is that an adequate explanation? Excellent. Um, and, well uh, and, and so this does lead to um, a lot of people do want to explain morality by evolution. Um, right. And so the way that I have heard it put is like this, you know, it comes in a number of steps, but usually it'll be characterized like this. Humans are a social species. And so this means certain behaviors were reinforced by the evolutionary process because they contributed to social cohesion. It it helped the group. It contributed towards cooperation and survival. And these are behaviors like empathy, uh, being empathetic towards other human beings, being altruistic or self-sacrificing, putting others before yourself. So generally seen as uh, an appropriate way to help advance the species. So that's reinforced. And so as these behaviors are reinforced through all the years of Darwinian evolution, they become established in in the human psyche and because they have been demonstrated to promote human well-being. So you can look at uh, how humans relate to each other and you can objectively see that certain behaviors do lead to a kind of well-being or flourishing. And so this means that, you know, at this point in our evolutionary history, we've moved beyond viewing morality as just about mere survival. Um, it's now a pursuit and a promotion of human flourishing or uh-huh. well-being. And so, you know, some skeptics are going to say empathy is the foundational starting point for moral reasoning. Um, because if you put yourself in the position of another conscious human being, you know, you know what it's like to be a conscious human being mm-hmm. and uh, you want to be treated certain ways. And so you have that awareness so you're able to take your own experience and awareness of what it is like to be a conscious human being, and mm-hmm. you can imagine yourself as another person. And so it, it it's supposed to create this empathy. And uh, and so the conclusion to this way of thinking for some people would be, this means that we don't need God to explain morality. You can establish um human well-being as a goal. I, I heard one skeptic say that morality is like chess. Uh, you know, the goal of chess is, of course, to win. Um, you want to uh, get to the checkmate, and there are certain rules for how you get to that end. You play the game. Um, and so, you know, the idea is that we just need to decide or recognize that, that the goal you know, that we're trying to get to um, that's what it means for morality to be objective in their view. So, yeah. well, uh, there is uh, this is the standard objection to the moral argument. Okay, now I keep referring to street smarts because I, in I, all these issues, I go into detail on this, especially the um, the evolutionary 
rejoinder, which is the one you offered. And it's a combination of individual biological evolution and kind of a cultural evolution that goes on. So there are two different things that are going on here. And by the way, biological is biological. Okay, that's event causation. That's just biology. Okay, the Darwinian, neo-Darwinian project, uh, synthesis rather. But the other one, culture, this is design. Because this is individuals kind of setting up codes that will help them to get along together. So I'm not disparaging it. I'm just making an observation. One is one is event causation, dominoes falling in the physical universe. The other one is people thinking about how to uh, adapt as a group. Okay, now, that's I, a good I, distinction. Lot, yeah, I, I have a lot to say about this, <clears throat> and uh, it, it, there's it was so odd. I, I wrote down as much as I could here. I got my scribbles, but um, first of all. Darwinian evolution is not about the survival of the species. It's about the survival of the selfish gene. There is no teleology to evolution. Evolution has no goal in itself. Individual genes um, survive and produce characteristics in the morphology and the physical body of the creature that is then reproduced. And if it's beneficial, that little change, that individual will reproduce more effectively. So it, it's not about survival. It's about reproduction. And it's not about species. It's about genes. And this is why Richard Dawkins famously wrote a book called The Selfish Gene. He's making this point. It doesn't know anything about society. It doesn't know anything about species. It just is reproducing according to natural selection and species die out, new species come forward. Okay, so this, just a clarification of how this, this project works. Um, uh, secondly, the, the claim that, the claim that um, morality develops by evolution, and you, you talked about um, certain patterns that build them, establish in the, um, the human psyche. I, what, these are questions that need to be asked. Okay, for one, how does that actually happen? You, what, what you just described is wand waving. All it is is a wand of evolution that's waved with this kind of very generalized explanation. This is not scientific. This is a philosophic characterization by telling a story. Some people call these just so stories, like after Kipling's fanciful tales for kids, because <clears throat> that's what they sound like. So my question is, how exactly does that work? You have genetic mutation working on natural, uh, natural selection working on genetic mutation. Tell me, how do you get genetic mutations, which are physical? Genes are mutated, which then manifest physical characteristics that are chosen for in natural selection. So that gene gets itself into the next generation. Where does a moral thought come into play, a moral belief that gets built into my psyche? You guys don't even believe in a psyche. You believe in brains. But notice how they smuggle these concepts in. They smuggle the uh, the human psyche. It's established in the human psyche. What's a human psyche? And how does a belief get created by the standard characterization of the evolutionary process. See, the devil's in the details here. And it's not just enough to wave a wand. It's it's a good place to start. Okay, this is how we think it happened. Now we got to show how empathy is created in the genes. Okay. By the way, if it is created in their genes, it's hard to call it a moral virtue in somebody any more than having blue eyes is a moral virtue. 
the genes created. It's determined. It's not chosen. It's part of your evolution. Okay. So these are some of the problems. How exactly does it create beliefs? I actually don't think it can do that. But let's just say that it can. All right. Um, where do these beliefs reside? In the psyche? What's the psyche? Well, you don't have a soul on this characterization. You have a brain and central nervous system. So where are beliefs, which are propositional, manifest in the, in the chemistry? Okay, so this is another problem. Now, they may be able to work this out. Fine, knock away at it. But this needs to be solved before you can say this is the right explanation for morality. And notice also the smuggling in of a moral concept into this whole process. Because what we see here is human flourishing. What the heck is that? What is human flourishing? Different people have different ideas of what flourishing looks like. Okay. Flourishing is a moral concept already. Okay. It's teleological. There's a goal in mind, the best experience of humanity. But what does that look like? Well, that depends on your moral code. Okay, so there's this kind of teleological concept built in to a non-teleological process. In other words, no end in view. And it it smuggles in a moral notion of flourishing, which look at for a Christian to flourish and for an atheist to flourish. These look very different. This is why we have conflict in our culture right now. You know, what is good for our culture? Transgenderism? Is that flourishing? Those people who are in favor of it believe it. Those people who are not in favor of us says, no, this is a denial of reality. This is dangerous. This is why the suicide rates are so high for transgender people. So notice now we've 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 brought in another element, real subtly, quietly, human flourishing. Oh, it sounds so great. But this trades on moral notions that you're trying to explain. So you can't you you can't smuggle in moral notions in an explanation of how moral notions come about. Okay, that's that's uh, that's suspiciously circular. Okay, but there's another problem. I mean, there's lots of problems, but I'm just touching on some of them because this is such a such a powerful um, rejoinder to the moral argument. Okay, so let's just say um, all of these things are are they they all of the characterizations they give us sound. Okay. That the, the biological natural selection mutation works to create beliefs, and the beliefs end up in our psyche, wherever that is, and that and those beliefs help us to be. Um, what was the word you used? Uh, not sympathetic, but uh, altruistic uh, and altruistic. Mm-hmm. And there was another one that you know where, where we empathize. Emp- they cause us to be empathetic, and all of these things, and then we flourish more. Okay, now here's the and th- and this makes up kind of the moral structure of human beings, right? Because here's the question. Where is that moral structure? Is that moral structure on the inside or is it on the outside? Well, it turns out that the evolutionary explanation of morality places all morality on the inside. In other words, if human minds didn't exist, there wouldn't be any morality. It's mind-dependent. Evolution can't make rape as an action in the world wrong. Biology can't do that. All it can ca- all it can do in principle is make you believe that it's wrong when it actually isn't objectively wrong. Now, uh, the, the atheistic evolutionary philosopher Michael Ruse from Florida State or University of Florida um, 
who I've actually had conversations with, um, ha- is very consistent here. He says, on the evolutionary take of things, morality is an illusion. It's not real. We have been tricked to believe that it's not that in morality and tricked by evolution to believe that it's objective, because if we didn't think it was objective, it wouldn't work for its purposes. But he's quite candid about this. Now, I debated Michael Shermer on national radio for three hours, and he just never got it right. And I got his book on morality right here behind me, and he gets it wrong, the whole thing. But Michael Roos gets it right because he's a careful philosopher. If there is no God, there is no objective morality. He agrees with the first premise. And the sense of morality that we have is produced by evolution, okay? In other words, the sense of morality is just a sense. It's inside of us. It's either inside of us individually, biologically, or inside of our group by cultural decision. But nevertheless, morality is inside of the subject. What does that make morality then? When all is said and done, if everything they claim about evolution is true, it means morality is only relative, That's it. What you got is a great grounding for relativistic morality, which means there is no problem of evil. There is no no justice. There are no human rights. All of that stuff that that are disqualified by relativism, in an objective sense, they're gone. Now, you can make things up all day long if you want to. That's what the Nazis did. So what is your principal argument against them? They They evolved differently. That's all you can say. Why do I have to? And why do I have to obey my evolution? If your evolution says that you should be nice, why do I have to obey your evolution? Maybe my evolution taught me differently. Or even if it taught me to be nice, why do I have to obey my genes? Do you, you see the problems here? Okay, so the, 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 the huge disqualifier here is it leaves you with relativism once again if all of that is the case. But there's another problem that C.S. Lewis noted and uh, the philosopher from uh, uh, Notre Dame. Uh, Alvin Plantinga. Yeah, Alvin Plantinga. Thank you, Parks. Um, he's made a big deal about this, and it's a problem. According to this view, uh, and Michael Roos is very clear about this, evolution works in such a way as to give you, create in your mind or your brain, in your psyche, false views about reality. We think these things are right or wrong. Objectively, that's a trick of evolution, according to Michael Rose. It's not the case that they are objectively right or wrong. That's a false view, a false view created by evolution. Well, wait a minute. If evolution creates false views about one aspect of morality, how can we trust it to create true views about other aspects of morality, because evolution does not select for truth. It selects for reproductive survivability. That's what it selects for. So how can we have any confidence that our understanding of evolution is a true understanding if the result is a mindless process? the result of our mind and everything was the result of a mindless process of natural selection working on mutations. This is a serious problem, a huge problem, but it's just one of many on this explanation. And so it turns out that, you know, this, this doesn't, the, the Darwinistic evolutionary counter to the moral argument doesn't survive. It doesn't work um, because what it, the best it does is it affirms 
it denies the premise that says morality is objective. And, uh, mm-hmm. and we know differently. The biggest thing is if morality is not objective, if the evolutionary thing is true, there is no problem of evil, no real problem of evil. Ironically, the same guys who hold this view complain about the existence of God based on, guess what? The problem of evil. You can't have it both ways if you're going to be intellectually honest. Michael Ruse uh, uh, is, is the best in this regard in terms of his clarity. Uh, and everybody else is playing a shell game. And I don't think they actually see it. I think they're just kind of caught up in their their deal. He, he, when I debated Michael Ruse, he said, we used to believe that homosexuality was objectively wrong. Now we believe that homosexuality is objectively okay. So now we've improved our morality. Wait, wait a minute. How could you improve it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very confused. And uh, the people who, who argue this way are, are as well. We are on solid ground, Parks, with the moral argument, every aspect of it. And it bears testimony to our best intuitions about the nature of reality. And, um, and the counters don't work. They just don't work. And Greg, I think uh, just kind of how you walked through that, it, it shows that one, it's important to be aware of when people try to give uh, evolutionary explanations for things. It's, it really is important to press on um, how they know what they're describing actually took place. Like where's, you know, to go back to the empirical evidence thing that that's stressed so much. Yeah, I think it's fair to say, where, where's the empirical evidence for how this occurred? And that's exactly right. what you did talking about, okay, if you're going to say that uh, this is the way morality developed somehow and was reinforced, where where is the uh, empirical evidence for that? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you're talking about biology, you're talking about an uh, empirical cell, system, right? Right. It's, it's, it's an empirical system all the way through. And so, I mean, that that's kind of another thing is that, you know, that would mean that morality is just it's 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 all physical you know it's not immaterial and i think based on other things we've talked about uh, it's obvious that again it's that realm of moral facts that we're mm-hmm. aware of that we mm-hmm. have knowledge it is immaterial so an explanation that that tries to reduce it to material reality can't be adequate but it's just it, it's seeing the logical implications of okay this is the kind of process you're saying produced morality somehow mm-hmm. um you have to think about the, the the implications of that downstream, and um, yeah, Michael Roos he, he he says morality is a biological adaptation, mm-hmm. no less than hands or feet. That's right. And uh, you know, we we could have evolved to think a, a completely differently about morality. By the way, that is a key point here because what it shows is that on this view, morality is not out there; it's in here. It could be different. And so what I I role model this a little bit, but I want to emphasize this because it's so important. Using questions is really important in these conversations. So when somebody says evolution created this, you say, well, how does that work? Evolution is like biological or rather uh, genetic mutation with natural selection, right? That's called the neo-Darwinian synthesis. Yeah. Okay. So help me understand how does that create empathy? How does that create a belief that something is wrong or I ought to be empathetic. How does that create that? Because that's the gap. You can't just wave the wand. So help me out there. By the way, when it say, let's say you're right. So does that mean that our morality is inside of us because evolution created it? That's our beliefs, right? So if we evolve differently, we could be different, have a different morality, right? So that means nothing out there is wrong. 
murder isn't wrong. It's only wrong because of our evolution, blah, blah, blah. So that's relativism. Okay, then how can there be evil in the world? This is the question. So notice how we're just taking what they say. And as you pointed out, Parks, there are, there are ramifications, there are implications for this. And we're asking questions. Very important. Use questions to navigate. Asking questions to exploit that weakness or flaw and, and let them work on it. We're not going to let them wave a wand. All right. We're going to we're going to make them think this through better than most of them have. And by the way, human flourishing. What What is that? What does that look like? Give me the details. What does it look like for humans to flourish? Do humans have rights? Where does that come from? Oh, humans made those rights. Can we unmake those rights then, too? Yeah, of course. Happens all the time. That's the problem when humans ground rights. They decide what's what rights we have anyway. So those are those are some tactical elements that are involved there, and that that whole book. And pardon me for mentioning it again, but it's fresh on my mind because I'm just finishing it. The uh, the whole street smarts. We unpack all these ideas. Then there are dialogues that are provided with the appropriate questions to launch the dialogue to get that dialogue moving. And really, I think it would be helpful to people, especially dealing with the moral issues. Yeah, it's so it's so important to know how to take. Uh, concepts like this, arguments like this, and and you know, gain a good understanding of them, and then to know how to discuss these issues with people in a way that can, right. uh, uh, you know, get them thinking in a good way uh, about the things that matter. Um, just one last point about this um, <clears throat> this objection is that I think it's another case of thinking you have offered an explanation for morality when you haven't so that's it's, right it, you know if you're if if you're going to say something like well morality developed through evolution this way um empathy something like empathy would be the foundational starting point for moral reasoning with the goal of human flourishing well you've just pointed out two things we recognize are good empathy is a good thing yeah certainly human flourishing however you know again you got to talk about what that looks like but you can you can recognize that those two things are good but it's a whole nother thing to explain why they're good. That's right. And uh, that's just, that runs into this problem that I keep seeing in challenges to the moral argument. Yeah. You know, you can explain it on a horizontal level in a sense, but what we're after is an explanation on the, the vertical level, yeah, so right. to speak. That's the um, difference between relativism, horizontal, inside the subject, and the uh, and objectivism, which is going to be uh, vertical, because that's the only way you're going to get a grounding for objective morality, and that's the only kind of morality that really counts. And we all know morality is real in that sense. That's right. Well, the last thing, just a couple things uh, to last few questions here would be: Okay, we've we've talked about what the moral argument is. We talked about some important features of it. We've looked at some objections. Um, so just I, I think a way to wrap up here would be just saying, okay, what what are some what are some implications uh, of the moral argument? So, one thing that we could ask is, um, what what does what does the moral argument tell us about God? Mm -hmm. Well, it tells us two things, and uh, and I've only, in a sense, started thinking about the second thing more recently because the first thing is what it's meant to do is to show you that there is a God. God exists. Cosmological argument, design argument, moral argument, God exists. But it actually does more than that. It shows you that not only does God exist, but that God's good. And that God is the only adequate source for that. 
such that if there is no God or if he exists and he, he isn't good, then there is no goodness. There is no standard. If God isn't good in himself, and that's the step that avoids the euthyphro dilemma, I heard it first as Euthyphro, so J.P. Moreland says it that way. So, But in any event— He's that's, probably uh, right. <laughs> I hear it both ways. Um, but that's, you know, if he's, if he's good in himself, that protects us against that other concern. It's the answer to that challenge. Uh, then there is hope for goodness, that God is good. And that means we can trust in his goodness, that what he's going to do with the world and in our individual lives as we entrust ourselves to him— will be good. But the, of course, the goodness of God is double-edged sword because people say, well, God is love. Yeah, well, why is God, how do you, what makes you think God is love? Yeah, he's not going to judge anybody. He's like, why do you think God is love? Well, because he's good. Okay, he's good. Yeah, well, then he's not going to judge people. Yes, he is. Why? Because he's good. The same reason that God is love is the reason that God is going to judge because he's good. And he must distinguish between evil and good in human behavior and reward that which is good and punish that which is evil. And of course, the problem is everybody <laughs> has broken God's law many, many, many times. We're all guilty. And this is why in love, out of his goodness, he has made provision so that he can be both just and merciful by becoming a man himself, taking on humanity, coming down in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, God with us, Emmanuel, and taking upon his shoulders the punishment that we deserve so that we can experience forgiveness through Christ rather than the judgment that we actually deserve given the reality of morality and the goodness of God. God's mercy is expressed through Christ. And uh, of course, that's our message. The whole moral thing cashes out on a personal basis and the forgiveness that God allow, offers for us, which we desperately need. And that takes it from the abstract, from the philosophical to the personal uh, and experiential. And uh, you mentioned earlier, people say, well, you just believe in God because it makes you feel better. Well, I'll tell you what, forgiveness feels really good. But we have good reason to believe forgiveness is available for the crimes we have actually committed against a good God. Greg, I think that's uh, that, that's so important. How the 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 goodness of God in many ways is uh, comes under question, and of course, that's a whole other topic. How people kind of go after that, but w when you kind of work through the moral argument and you see that that's that's what it says is, is that there is a a a good uh, personal God. Um, now, you know, as as Christians, when you look at all the other arguments for uh, the existence of God combined with uh, you know, the reliability of the Bible and Jesus and his claims and resurrection, it, it's it's that cumulative case that, that would lead to right. the God of the Bible. So uh, the moral argument is not doing all the work here, but it's That's making right. important contributions. And so kind of having all that other as background, when, when this is pointing to the God of the Bible— and his goodness. I mean, that's huge. And of course, the Bible speaks about these things. It speaks about the goodness of God, speaks about uh, how his law is written on our hearts, our conscience bears witness to this. Mm -hmm. um, and these are just really important points, and especially when we think about our own moral failings and how we have sinned and the the, the what we're aware of in terms of our guilt. I mean, that that is an extension of this question about morality, and it leads, it should lead 
um, at least as the Bible speaks about it, straight straight to the cross, which is where, like you said, we find uh, that forgiveness and that mercy and that uh, reconciliation. You know, mm-hmm. Paul talks Absolutely. about you know, he he made the one who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And exactly, uh, it, I mean, you can't get more personal than that. And I I, I think that's uh, that's huge. Um, so. Just to wrap up, are there any other important implications uh, you know, that we haven't talked about of this argument in in your view? Well, I, I think the two things I mentioned, that God is and that he's good, um, are huge. Th- those are the main things that I focus in on. And uh, uh, I, I actually haven't thought – there are probably more. Maybe you have some thoughts about that. But I, I, uh, those are the big ones. But that that covers a whole lot of real estate, you know. And um, as you pointed out, the moral argument by itself doesn't give us Christianity, but it certainly is consistent with Christianity. And when we think of God's goodness and our badness, given the moral, the reality of morality in the world, then that puts us in a position where, okay, now what? God is good and we're not. That's not good news. Okay. And so then the message of mercy that comes through Christ fits so nicely. And the the other religions, I don't the great monotheistic religions like Islam and Judaism, they they, they just don't provide that. Uh, it's not that God can't be merciful, but but there is a, a way in which this is cashed out in Christian theology where God is both just and the justifier of them who have has faith in Christ. And so I think it really comes full circle and really gives us a package that that's uh, that's more more rich and justifiable. Of course, it's not just theoretical about Jesus coming down. He's a man of history. And so this can also be tested and the resurrection, which secures our salvation can also be tested based on the historical evidence. So at every single point of our testimony, every piece of our worldview, we can look at pieces of evidence that give us confidence that this particular part is all sound and accurate. And so therefore the whole package is pretty good. Greg, I think the only other thing that I could um, think of in terms of an implication would be, uh, you know, we talked about human rights Um when you think about the moral argument, uh, it, and then you think about how this claim of rights is a moral claim, uh, underneath that claim of rights is a claim of human value of some yes. kind. Uh-huh. And I think, you know, we want to talk about uh, cultural issues and what's prominent. Well, I mean, you're always going to hear claims about human rights, uh-huh. human rights being violated uh, and, and, you know, talk like that. And I, mm-hmm. I think underneath that is another powerful evidence that humans are more than biological machines, you know, that we, we seem to, to recognize that there is some sort of, uh, intrinsic value there and that, and that there's a lot of ways that that's violated. And those are the times most often when we, uh, when we recognize that something immoral has happened. Yeah. And and I, I think that's another point. It's like, that's, that's a great, um, yeah, I didn't. I hadn't mentioned that. I think of it in a little different category because that's like anthropology. That's now we get to human beings. God is the standard for the universe, morality. But part of that package turns out to be human beings being unique and special. We already know this, and this is another feature of the world that we know in, intuitively. But how do we explain that? The Christian worldview does explain it because we are not God. We are not little gods. But we are like God in a way that makes all the difference. We are made in God's image. And all human rights and moral obligations towards other human beings flow from this fact 
that human beings are made in the image of God. So this is all part of the moral package and fits right in with the objective morality we've, we've been talking about. Well, Greg, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show today to, to to discuss this very important topic. I've really enjoyed our conversation, and uh, I, I think it's been a good uh, overview uh, and you know in depth in a lot of places on the moral argument. Um, so I, I think that'll be helpful for uh, our listeners. If if uh, if people want to find out more about you, about Stand to Reason, about some of the the books you've written, uh, yeah. where would they go? Well, the, our website is real easy. Stand to Reason is the organization that I founded thirty years ago. Now this May, and uh, God's been pleased to prosper it all this time. Our the acronym is STR, and so the website is str.org. Really simple, and we have thousands of articles and videos and training material, all kind. Just go there and scout around. You, it, it's going to, you'll be amazed at how much stuff is there. You have any question, just put it in the search bar. And chances are we've already spoken to that on our podcasts or maybe written about it or something like that. So that's all available. The books I mentioned are uh, tactics. And I didn't mention the story of reality, uh, how the world began and how it ends and everything important that happens in between is the subtitle. Uh, but uh, the new one coming out, I have mentioned relativism also. All of these are available under my name, K-O-U-K-L, at uh, Amazon. And uh, the one coming out, it's already uh, ready for pre-order later this summer, is uh, Street Smarts, Using Questions to Answer Christianity's Toughest Challenges. So those are the things I'd recommend. And I've been doing um, this kind of thing like we've done for 33 years now. I do two hours a week of this uh, by myself. And then I do two other half-hour shows um, with with one of my teammates. Uh, and so if you go to str.org, they can find the information. They can sign up for stuff. Uh, so uh, we also recommend other people too. We're in a community of thoughtful people who have faced up to the big challenges Christianity and uh, done a great job in answering the, those challenges. So that's what I would suggest. Excellent. Well, thank you so much again, Greg. Uh, really, really appreciate your time and uh, and the work of uh, Stand to Reason. Oh, well, all the best to you. Parks did a great job. And um, you want to chat again sometime, we'll, we'll set it up. Okay. 